Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. Can you hear me? This is working. Oh, yeah, now I can hear it. Thank you all for being here. It is uh, quite a few of you here. Uh, you know, I, my frame of reference are Dallas Seminary Chapels, uh, Lancaster Seminary Chapels, and now Wake Divinity School Chapels. And uh, I've got to say that there are a lot more of you here than maybe I shouldn't put that business in the street. Huh? Mm. But I am very happy to be here this morning. Uh, this feels like home. And the reason I say that is some of you may know that uh, this was the campus of uh, Wake Forest University uh, for the first about 120 so years of its existence, from 1834 um, to 1956 when it moved to Winston-Salem. Uh, and so for those of you students who are now in the audience uh, as proud members of the Southeastern Seminary uh, Institution, um, but you came here and you kind of got lost because you were intended to go to Winston-Salem. I say welcome to you this morning as well. Now, the reason I say that is we consistently get students who will call and say, I'm, I'm supposed to be there for an, an interview today or a conversation with admissions, and I'm in Wake Forest, but I cannot find Wake Forest University. Where are you? And we'll say, well, where are you? Well, I'm in Wake Forest. <laughs> and we realize that uh, they've made the mistake of coming to this beautiful campus, which, again, feels a lot like home to me. Uh, I, I also like to um, acknowledge some folks. Um, first and foremost to President Aiken, thank you so much for this gracious invitation. Uh, Jeremy Evans, uh, I don't know if you're out there from whom this invitation initially came. Is Jeremy here? No? Well, uh, this will be streamed, I'm sure, and, and videoed. And so to Jeremy, uh, I send a greeting from my wife, which is a, a heartfelt gigam. Uh, because I understand he, too, is a graduate of Texas A&M University, as is my wife. Uh, although you may not want to hold it against her, she is what, uh, she went to fish camp, but she's what you would call a two-percenter, uh, which for folks who went to Texas A&M is like being a four-point Calvinist. You know, it's just not, it's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite right, right? Uh, but she is, in fact, a two-percenter. Uh, you know, it, it, there are not too many places I go where a Calvinist joke could, uh, a reform joke could, <laughs> right, can, can, can play. All right, all right. Uh, well, thank you all uh, to Amy Norton for her patience with me in getting material back uh, to Brother Walter Strickland, with whom I uh, early on had exchange uh, regarding uh, civil rights era and religious thought. 
and to any faculty, administration, staff, trustees, students, and friends. Uh, thank you this morning for coming out. Welcome. I know this is a, a hustle and bustle morning with uh, voting, uh, which I did early, so that I can be here with you on time. So I'd like to begin uh, today. I, I, I've got, if you, this is the, uh, I'll come back to this image. Uh, but I'd like to begin our time this morning uh, with a statement and a question. Uh, let's begin with the initial statement, if we could. There we go. My faith is stronger today. The actual statement was, my faith is stronger today in the loss of my first son than it ever has been. Now, this statement was uh, said to me in 1996 as I, at the wake of a slain friend, Robert Jefferson, who had that week been murdered in my uh, neighborhood of the Watts section of Los Angeles, California. Uh, that Friday, uh, thank you, I see them now, that Friday, I went to Robert's wake with full intention uh, of uh, comforting his mother, Anne, uh, uh, one of my fictive mothers in my community. And it was there that Anne, as I went to her, standing over Robert's coffin, realizing the weight of a, the loss of a friend that I had known since, I don't know, five or six years old, I went to her to try to comfort her, and what ultimately happened was she comforted me, with, comforted me with her faith. Now, here I was, college graduate, uh, uh, coming up the ranks, as it were, at, at uh, Faithful Central, at the time, Missionary Baptist Church, uh, Bishop, Bishop Kenneth C. Omer being the pastor. I was there with Brian Loritz. Uh, we were young guys called out on fire for the gospel. And so I thought that this was my opportunity to be a strength for her, and I realized that the strength of her experience far outweighed the strength that I had. And she said in that moment, my faith is stronger today than it was before today in the loss of my firstborn child. That made no sense to me, but it blew my mind. Second statement coming up. You seem smart. Why are you a Christian? Now, uh, you will, there will be four statements, two today, two tomorrow. Uh, the first statement, it's worth noting, uh, uh, came in 1996. The next statement, which is actually a question, came uh, in 1997 over lunch with a coworker uh, when I was in corporate America. I used to work for Kaiser Permanente. I was an underwriter on the healthcare side. You can tell I'm a, I would be great as an underwriter, right? I don't like to talk at all. Uh, but I was an underwriter, a, a kind of numbers, bean counter as they called us, numbers guy, uh, even though I was an English major. Go figure. Um, but in that space, I go to um, lunch with a friend of mine, and at that juncture in my life, I figured that most black folk I knew were Christian. That's, that's what I figured, in part because in my neighborhood in Los Angeles, California, even gangbangers went to church. Even hardened gangsters 
would crip walk. Yeah, y'all know the crip walk? Yeah, I could do a little crip walk. <laughs> they would crip walk and be at church respectfully on Sunday morning. And so you assume that this becomes the climate of my faith uh, heritage. And yet and still, here it was, I'm having lunch with a young man similar in age, African-American, who says to me, how could you be duped by Christianity as a religion of the powerful and a tool of oppression? These two statements rocked my world. It was right at that moment that I realized what I was trying to understand about my own faith perspective was a bit deeper than what I had initially given it credit uh, for. It was more complex. It was messier than what I had initially thought. And this ultimately caused me to ask several questions of my own. Now let me pause for a moment here. Uh, I know for some of you, uh, there, you, you, you know, one, know, one never knows what one expects when they see a person standing here. Uh, yes, I am African American. I am. <laughs> but I'm not going to be preaching today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those who expected uh, me to be preaching. Uh, that will be in a few weeks. Uh, today I will be giving a lecture, but you'll, you'll get some of my Baptist accoutrements as I go along. Of course, I've got the Baptist cloth. That's for the... <laughs> so I look like I'm preaching. I know, I know. So ultimately, this question and statement gave way to an inquiry that haunted me throughout my seminary life and led me to graduate school to pursue Ph.D. and led me in part uh, here today. I began to ponder simply, yet equally, uh, a simply and equally complex question. Why did so many African and African Americans during slavery choose to convert to this particular religion? As I approached graduate school, I reasoned that early African American Christian history would give me the answers that I sought. I was forced to reckon with the fact that the faith of my own foremothers and forefathers had been used as a tool to maintain oppression. In fact, that part of my friend's critique may have very well been true. But was that faith complicit in that uh, oppression? Was it complicit in allowing for chattel slavery? These were the questions I wanted to at least answer or attempt to answer in my work and what ultimately became my first book. If all of this were true, what was it about Christianity? What was it about conversion, acceptance of Jesus Christ, that created spaces for enslaved people to see its transformative possibilities? These questions I wrestled with. How would it aid them in dealing with the harmful realities of slave life? I tell my students often, I said, you, you, you need to get a clear picture of the faith of these folks during the time of slavery. For example, if I were to have been on a plantation in, say, 1808, I am 
uh, caught up in the swell of the Great Awakenings. By now, the kind of second Great Awakenings and the associated revivals in the southern states uh, that is trickling down even from northern states, from northern colonies. And I convert to this particular faith, to Christianity. I accept Jesus Christ, and we can articulate what that means. We'll talk about some of that in, uh, today and tomorrow. But I come to the faith. And if I come to the faith at the age I am now, which is in my early 40s, I may not live to see 1865, emancipation. So what then was it about that faith perspective that allowed so many folks to accept that faith? Not sure whether or not they would see manumission, freedom, as a uh, condition or a connector to the acceptance of that faith. And many of them did accept, in part based upon what they thought they might receive socially from it. So for me, the questions that I wanted to consider um, are encased in two historical positions stated by two thinkers more than 100 years apart. I begin with the latter of the two, uh, which was stated by a pro prolific novelist, James Baldwin, uh, civil rights uh, leader, uh, and uh, just a, a wonderful human being. being. Um, but when I read this statement in his book, it gave me chills. And this uh, comes from his book, The Fire Next Time. And he says, quote, If one is permitted to treat any group of people with special disfavor because of, the race, because of their race or the color of their skin, there is no limit to what one will force them to endure. And, since the entire black race has been mysteriously indicted, no reason not to attempt to destroy it, root and branch, end quote. Shaking, stirring. But then I wanted to peer deeper, go back into history to see what people of faith were thinking on those plantations. And so the second statement for me digs deeper into the lament and the prophetic critique woven within early expressions of black faith in this country. It was delivered in 1845 in a speech by Frederick Douglass, drawing upon the 23rd chapter of Matthew, putting his life on the line to make these statements. He says thus, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. All their works they do to be seen by men. They attend with pharisaical strictness to the outward forms of religion and at the same time neglect the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. For enslaved African Americans during the antebellum period, that period after the colonial period leading up to civil war, who converted, the seeds of Christian faith were established as a result of intense struggle. Slaves in large numbers, though, converted to Christianity, most notably during these periods of Great Awakening in the latter 1700s and early 1800s. 
Once many of the converted slaves began to better understand the biblical text through their own appropriation and interpretation, funneled through their lived experiences, even though many of them were not even allowed to read or, or gain literacy, certain conflicts would begin to arise with, with respect to the nature of God to them. Through the biblical text itself, Douglas saw that the Christianity espoused by those who promoted slavery offered very little, if any, hope outside of the, limit, of the limiting confines of plantation life. In fact, as with the Pharisees in the biblical accounts, slaveholding religion promoted as Christianity in America fell short of the heartfelt acts of Jesus Christ toward the least, the last, and the lost. Against this backdrop of historical maltreatment of certain bodies, we give way to a certain contemporary form of paranoia, as I draw from anthropologist and race theorist John Jackson from UPenn, and racialization as drawn from Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their work Divided by Faith. One reality is clear. African Americans, even in modern times, have actively labored to secure wholeness in the face of social, political, cultural, and physical maltreatment. As others, they have been forced to endure a deathly experience. The metaphorical idea of death is a trope framing the nature of African, Americans, uh, African American life in light of continued exploitation. In response to this metaphor of physical death, uh, this setting, a certain form of Christian expression emerges. For instance, within this experience, even biblical interpretation is used to debase the image of African American life. And yet harmful biblical interpretation is simultaneously turned on its head and used to fortify and transform their lives. What then bubbles to the surface is a proactive element of faith that binds and fortifies communities of struggle. This framing of an active Christianity does not deny the important elements of personal piety or becoming closer to God through Jesus Christ or the internal hope and salvation that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. However, what I'm pushing for here is an isolation of a certain function within the gospel and its utility in response to discrimination as a way of broadening the language around who is a part of the human family. African Americans, by faith, have engaged in a fight against social extinction that puts their very faith in question. This is why those old church mothers wouldn't be silent as when I was a kid in church. No, they would throw up their holy hands and make declarations about faith that I could not yet understand. We must be mindful, as it, uh, it seems to me, of this historical backdrop, even in our so-called post-race society. Prejudged and indicted in an unbalanced social and political scene, African Americans throughout history have often been reminded of the absence of justice. And some folks still feel this stain. Blacks were simultaneously citizens in this country and yet exceptions within the context of American life. 
This form of dual social positioning produced isomorphic forces of religion or divine law and order on one hand and forces of politics, that is, human law and order on the other, which both confined African-American life. Without a claim to justice on the basis of divine or moral law, African-Americans were compressed and encased for social and physical consumption. Historically, this double imposition of confinement remains the preeminent structure of African-American life and must be acknowledged even in contemporary times. So that's the setting that I approached as I wanted to articulate this study, wanted to understand the nature of this experience. And this, for me, is where a reclaiming spirit takes center stage. My first personal faith story is a rich tapestry uh, uh, and is indicative of a complex tradition of black faith in this country. I was, uh, as we say in urban circles, raised in the church. I was baptized at seven years old, uh, and I was baptized at a Baptist church, so I guess I'm in the right place, which means I was completely dipped and brought up. Uh, I was raised in part Lutheran. I, I went to a Lutheran school and started attending a Lutheran church for some time. I later landed in the Reformed tradition uh, as connected to my, uh, what ultimately led me to uh, Talbot Theological Seminary and then later Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, in fact, I like to tell this joke that, uh, uh, it's not really a joke, it's a reality, that uh, I worked at Kaiser Permanente in Pasadena, California, which is right across the street from a very large seminary, some of you may know, called Fuller Seminary. And uh, in the mid-90s in my church, uh, I, I, I had the choice of going to Fuller or Talbot Theological Seminary, 45 miles on the other side of Los Angeles. And I chose Talbot because Fuller was too liberal. They include, you know, there was an idea that there could be errancy of scripture and I couldn't go to Fuller. I had to go to Talbot and follow my uh, uh, advisor and my mentor, uh, uh, Bishop Kenneth C. Omer. So I would take this trip all the way to the other side of town to go to Talbot Theological Seminary. So my personal faith was groomed in this Reformed tradition. I would ultimately be ordained National Baptist and... Uh, I come from a family of an oral tradition where values, customs, recipes, stories of faith, and wisdom were steadily offered to, be, to me by my grandmother, Sadie Lucille Dean, on her front porch. Her stories of our family's trials and overcoming were vivid. They were marked by a steadfast fast faith in a God who could do great things with people of no great reputation. I recall the stories of her days as a youth in the Jim Crow South of Louisiana and my family's migration from Louisiana to Los Angeles, California after World War II. Hers were stories of a young girl who at the age of 12 had been, uh, had, had been forced to help her grandmother, who was a domestic, clean the homes of white families in Colfax, Louisiana. They were required to enter and exit the back doors of the families they served, eating and taking their meals in the kitchens or on the back porches 
as was the custom of the day. Hers was a coming-of-age story where she experienced her first menstrual cycle as she washed the menstrual rags of the girls whose homes they cleaned. It was a story of awaiting the return of her one true love, my grandfather, who served his country honorably in World War II, a story of going to college and of having her first child, my mother, Renee Dean, in Monroe, Louisiana, while in college. It was a story, again, of waiting for my grandfather while he would make the initial trip west to chart a path for his new family in the Canaan land of Los Angeles. All these stories were wrapped in the reality of my grandmother's steadfast, unyielding, undying faith. She um, had been exposed to the sufferings of her people. She had been forced to adhere to Southern Jim Crow protocols. She had observed lynching. Yet she knew firsthand how faith in God would overcome anything and make ways out of no way. It is in this way that African Americans have articulated what I call a reclaiming past, or in my book, a reclaiming spirit, a spirit that governs the nature of their Christian expression for those who have had to endure this world as the others. These are the ones that knew what it felt like to, quote, be a problem, end quote, as W.E.B. Du Bois puts it. Those who were ever forced to view themselves through the lenses of others, a double consciousness that would come to epitomize their existence. And as Du Bois puts it, two warring ideals, two unreconciled strivings in one dark body whose dogged strength alone would uh, uh, not allow it to be torn asunder. It is my contention that this idea, theory, hermeneutic, if you will, of reclamation gets us closest to answering the difficult questions of why so many African Americans would, in spite of the odds, convert to Christianity in those early years. By reclamation, I am referring to a posture of seeking something good out of the bad. As a literal definition, it is the extraction of something useful from waste or refuse, trash. Reclamation made the gospel accessible and palatable for those early African Americans. Reclamation allowed them to change their posture by way of the Christ event, thus underlying black Christian struggles for social transformation uh, uh, was and remains a unique spirit of reclamation oriented in a concern for healing and a desire for wholeness in the face of discrimination. Within African-American life, Christian faith authors, what uh, some call a cultural toolkit, used to mediate the existential crisis of degradation. Thus, micro-practices among antebellum African-Americans such as risking life to share readings of the Bible or overturning pots, as you notice on the image there. On the, oh, it's not up anymore, but on the image when it comes back up, overturning pots 
so that they can maintain the secrecy of their hidden worship. I recall uh, uh, Dr. Aiken in, in one of his sermons here uh, making reference to those stealing away moments, those secret worships of African-American slaves. In spite of these dire odds, these were creative and faithful human actors who drew upon a spiritual and biblical toolkit to proactively address their woundedness in life. What we ultimately find among them is a robust, culturally complex spirituality and faith that therapeutically recalibrates, changes, reconstructs harmful depictions of their lives. In fact, it becomes a quest for wholeness that therefore becomes a starting point, a primary religious principle guiding every attempt to reclaim justice from the refuse, the trash of exploitation. An inner theme then of self-amending becomes illustrative as the nature of black Christian expression. Uh, Intentional efforts to amend fractured identities and bodies affected the consciousness of and consequences of chattel slavery to illuminate life anew for these faithful people. I therefore challenge dominant assumptions that black Christianity is solely governed by a primary concentration on corporate liberation. While the tradition emphasized the corporate liberation, some from black liberation theology, has been invaluable to understanding how Christianity impacted the greater community of sufferers, mundane religious activities also contribute to the healing of the community. People of African descent would therefore sanitize a soiled form of Christianity that declared them a cursed race in the line of the disorderly and dishonorable acts of Ham and a violent race in the line of the first violent murderer, Cain. They would extract a tonic from a Bible that was used as a toxic so that they might be transformed, so that they might be seen as new creatures, not simply in terms of sin nature, but also as whole people in God's sight. They would sing, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man? They would sing, ride on King Jesus, ride on the conquering thing. And continuing this narrative, my grandmother can still be heard singing, in her sweet, low voice, as she cleans the house, as she dusts, as she makes up the beds. beds. Oh, the blood that Jesus shed for me, way back on Calvary, the blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. This is what my grandmother will reverberate around the living room. And I I used to say as a kid, "Uh, Grandmama, isn't that a, a communion song? We aren't supposed to sing that at communion. And she says, one day you'll understand what the blood actually means, baby. And you might sing this song every single day of your life. By cleaning up Christianity, they were able to draw upon its cleansing properties to present their lives anew, cleansed, healed, and empowered by the blood. The resulting nature of faith, of this faith tradition, gives hope 
to the others and is articulated in the words of Jesus himself, the one who is most worthy to be emulated in African-American traditions. If we take, for example, Jesus' directive in Matthew 20, 1 through 16, the parable of the laborers, we get a disclosure of reclamation. Jesus is doing what my grandmother would call the math that she didn't understand. Jesus is doing new math. Here Jesus is offering a dying world, a calculation, a new equation of life in God's kingdom. It is an inverted formula where the least and the last are first. Jesus is reclaiming the value of bodies deemed less worthy. By inverting the value of the least and, more importantly, the last of the least, Jesus creates a new kingdom climate where the last in receive first and equal blessing. Jesus is charting the course picked up by one of my favorite preachers, Baby Suggs Holy, who we find in Toni Morrison's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Beloved, an untrained preacher. We are told that Baby Suggs Holy loved, cautioned, fed, chastised, and soothed people wounded by oppression. As Morrison would put it in the book, because slave life had busted her legs, back, head, eyes, hands, kidneys, womb, and tongue, she had nothing left to give but her heart, which she put to work at once. Baby Suggs Holy reclaims the significance of her body while preaching from her big heart to those who had yet to expunge the degradation of slave life. She didn't tell them to stop sinning and reap greater reward in the by and by. No, she called them to imagine anew the worth of their bodies. The life-giving content of her sermon brings the gospel to life to a broken people, focusing on the value of their discarded and degraded bodies. And here is some of what she declares. She says, In this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, dances barefoot in the grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No, nor do they love your skin on your back. Yonder they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke your face because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Feet that need rest and to dance. Backs that need support. Shoulders that need arms. Strong arms, I'm telling you. And all oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck. Pat it. Put a hand on it. Grace it. Stroke it and hold it up. And all your inside parts, they just as soon slop for hogs. you got to love them too. Baby Sugg's sermonic disclosure articulates a reclaiming spirit. Taking the waste and refuse 
of what had been given by the world and laying claim to the power of God granted to the least. The painting above, if we can show it one more time, is the cover art of my book. It is by a fantastic artist named Von Sumner. I would uh, uh, send in, any and all of you to check out his beautiful art on his website. Uh, he is not a black artist, uh, but we befriended each other while I was in Pennsylvania. And um, he said, I'll be honored to do the cover art for your work. And I said, well, um, I want you to take a work that you've already done, which is called Sienna, and I want you to repackage it. I don't want you to be able to make out the faces that you see, but I want you to convey some active movement, some opportunity to go somewhere, some effort to try to get to a new spiritual space. He would entitle this painting, Going Home. Unfortunately, I don't make enough to afford the painting itself, uh, but for some time I think he's going to keep this painting available just in case uh, my ship comes in and I can pay for it. But in a real sense, I read this painting as motion. If you notice the bricks, uh, you, they, they may not be as visually, uh, not, not as clear to your scene from the audience, but I had him replicate the bricks of a slave pen and auction house in New Orleans. And if you notice the symbols, uh, the light being carried forward, uh, the arm that is disconnected from anyone kind of in the shadow, that's my homage to Picasso's Guernica, uh, if you know that painting. Uh, and then you have the one carrying the text, the Bible, the centering force. You've got the sister who is praising in spite of the struggles. You've got the one holding the cross symbolizing who they are as a community. And then you have one symbolizing their cultural complex heritage in holding that overturned pot I mentioned. The secretive nature of this movement and the triumphal faith it exhibited and the sheer determination of the people in this image conveys a sense of finding one's home and center in Christ. It discloses excuse me, a reclaiming spirit in that these bodies were willing to put their lives on the line to find their Zion, their sacred space to fully express their humanity as people of God. Black faith has traditionally been an active expression a liberating posture, one that takes this Christ event and makes it live, alive in these experiences through what I call reclamation. Thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www dot sebts dot edu. 
We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.